0: Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Hey everybody, welcome back to Living Water, where we're looking at Bible stories through the lens of water or the lack of it, and we're really beginning to meet some old friends in a new way and learn some old stories uh, with a new purpose, if you will. And today I want to look at John chapter 10, which is the story of Jesus the Good Shepherd. Uh, Shepherds appear again and again in Scripture as a metaphor or an image or even a backdrop Uh, But I think there's even more to it than we realize. And so what I want to do is read just a few verses of John 10 and then enter their world. I I will say that the good shepherd image is familiar to most Christians because we use John 10 for funerals, and it is a passage of great comfort. But I think if we spend a little time with shepherds, we're going to even see something new. So that's what I'm going to try to do in this episode. So this is John 10, beginning with the first verse. I'll stop at verse 6. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus said, anyone who does not enter by the sheepfold, by the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought them out on his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run for him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Well, we'll stop right there and and see if we can't think about shepherds. Travel to Israel today, and you get an immediate visual when it comes to shepherding, especially in the Judean wilderness, which is that desert I've talked about in past episodes, the Desert of the Temptations. It's that desert that's part of the Great Rift Valley, the lowest crack on planet Earth with the Jordan River at the bottom. It's so low below sea level. There's no water and nothing green growing down there. And you've got this 3,000-foot ascent road that goes up that we call the Jericho Road. It's a highway. And alongside you see Bedouins. You see Bedouins living there uh, in a world with no walls, no fields, no water except a few winter rains, and 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 herds. And you need a shepherd because herds will get lost in this kind of world. There are no, there are no fences, there are no pastures, just rocky hills to climb on, and you'll see shepherds with uh, goats and camels and sheep. And the word Bedouin means desert dweller. So it, it could encompass really all kinds of people. I, I did have a friend say to me that she was traveling in the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, the adjacent, uh, the adjacent country to Israel, and the guide said that those Bedouins on the Jericho Road were gypsies, that the Bedouins were actually a noble people. Well, I did a little digging on this and talked to some friends that live over there, and they explained to me that the Hashemite uh, monarchy is a Bedouin family, and so they want to distance themselves from other Bedouins who might be living more of a gypsy-style uh, life so, so Bedouins can be fancy and they can be poor. And I have a friend who's named Fahez, who's a Bedouin who owns a truck stop with a camel ride that's a lot of fun. I'll take you there sometime. Bedouins can be just about anybody if you live in the desert in this, really in this biblical kind of lifestyle. Uh, the word the word Bedouin simply is a cover for uh, people who live in this nomadic uh, desert world. Okay, there you go. As of 2020, there are 210,000 of them in Israel. 150,000 down in the south, down in Jerusalem and then the Negev, below that. Uh, 50,000 up in the Galilee, which we've learned about. 10,000 in the Jezreel Valley. And about 1,600 of them serve in the army of scouts because they're really, really good at tracking stuff. And while polygamy is officially illegal in the nation of Israel, it doesn't count out in the desert, okay? You can get away with just about anything, and a Bedouin chieftain can have as many wives as the Bedouin chieftain can afford. Uh, education is not very important to these people. Only about 4% of them finish high school. And the reason for this is because they use the children to tend the herds. Okay, this is bringing us back to shepherds again. Uh, Travel up the Jericho Road, which is a modern highway, a four-lane highway, you will notice that they tap into electrical fixtures, like the highway lighting will blink every, every fifth pole or so because they're tapping in and that's their source of electricity for their camps. And their camps are just rough sheds with tarps, and because it doesn't rain out there, you can pretty much live out in the open. Okay, now that we know a little bit about Bedouins, maybe even more than we want to know, let's go back to the scriptures. In a world with very little water, a Bedouin diet or anyone living in the desert's diet would be meat. It would be more pastoral than agricultural because nothing grows down there. So today, the Bedouins will eat goat and camel for their protein, uh, and also that meat would be a source of necessary salt. But sheep are valued. They're valued and they're raised for wool, and it becomes a unique relationship between flock and shepherd, Uh, and, and this is why it's used throughout Scripture. It's because the sheep are in a relationship with the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, the psalmist would say, right? Because we need one out in a world with no walls and no protection from falling off a cliff or a jackal or, or, or anything that might harm the flock. And there will be other, there will be other examples uh, besides the psalmist and besides John chapter 10, uh, using shepherds to communicate something to God's people. And this would come from the prophets. Prophets use shepherds all the time. Now, I need to probably tell you what prophets do and why we have prophets before I tell you about prophets. And shepherds, um, prophets arise in the Bible about the same time that God's people asked for a king. So the story goes like this. In the Hebrew Scriptures, God's people lived in the promised land, ruled by judges, and they asked for a king to unite them, to unify them. Probably, also, to protect them from harm, but also because they wanted a king, because their neighbors had a king. It probably gave them a sense of nationalism and awareness of themselves as a nation and and anyway god's people got kings eventually, but they also got prophets. God said in effect, "I will give you a king, a monarchy like you asked, but I 'm always going to give you a prophet to speak truth to you and there's something there's something remarkably egalitarian about the Hebrew scriptures that continues to this day in the nation of Israel. Uh, people are very honest with their leaders. They speak to them on the street. Uh, they speak their mind to them. Uh, they were God's people always intended to be different from the world around them. But the danger would be that if they had a monarchy, uh, they would suddenly have a, an aristocracy or something that would look like, more like the neighbors and less like the Ten Commandments. And so prophets are there to bring kings back into account. So you've got prophets who speak to the court. You've got prophets who speak to the people. You've got prophets who speak, you have anthologies of prophets' words like Amos, which is probably the oldest prophet, 800 years uh, before Jesus. And then you've got stories about prophets, well, not the prophets' words, but their deeds like Elijah and Elisha uh, found in the, in the kingdom of the north in First and Second Kings. Um, and then you've got prophets who appear during the exile. And this is very, very important. See, God's people, a backstory of the Bible that we need to all remember is that God's people lost everything. 600 years before Jesus' birth. They lost it all. Babylon destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and then what was left of the tiny remnant of Judea down in the south took their best and brightest to a land far, far away. We've talked about this in many episodes. And they left left in despair, and they came back different. And the reason why they left in despair is because they lived in a world of monolatry. It was the best they could understand the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods but me, uh, they lived in a world that presumed that that means that there were other gods, you were simply to favor of uh, the God of the Hebrews. Uh, and when, when God when God lost, if you will, to the Babylonian army, taking his house away and his people away, uh, then they must have they must have concluded that the Babylonian gods were more powerful. So they're taken far, far away, and then suddenly God starts speaking to them again through prophets, and they learn that they got it wrong with the first commandment. It's not that God is first among many gods that you're to keep before uh, a golden calf, that rather those other gods aren't real. There is only one God, God over all. And God was speaking to them way out there saying, I'm not confined in a box. And so they came home as monotheists. They left as monolatrists. They came back as monotheists. They changed because of what the prophet said to them. The prophet Isaiah in our Bible is is really a, begins with the prophet Isaiah warning of the exile to come, and then there are two successive prophets. One prophet uh, is a going home prophet in the school of Isaiah. Very very common to take your take your teacher's name, and then another prophet uh, we think is at the at the time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and so Isaiah forty is right at the start of the going home prophet. And in Isaiah chapter 40, this prophet, and imagine how exciting it is, right? That God is speaking to you uh, when you thought you have lost it all. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse nine, this is what the prophet says. I'm gonna bring you a shepherd. Get you up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather up the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. They all knew that babies follow their mother. And so what God is going to do now is God is going to be their shepherd as, as God will lead them home, leading the mamas so the babies can follow Jeremiah was another kind of prophet. Uh, it, it, Jeremiah was a warning prophet only. He warned that exile would come. And at the time of the siege, when the Babylonians would begin to, to you know start their siege engines and begin to attack the city, uh, the court was so undone by Jeremiah's honesty that they threw him into a pit and hoped he would die. He didn't die, but Jeremiah was the weeping prophet because people were always beating up on him and nobody was listening. And so for Jeremiah shepherding was a benchmark or a standard for their leaders. That's how he used shepherding. So remember, Isaiah used, uh, the going home Isaiah used uh, God as a shepherd. Uh, Jeremiah used it as a benchmark of judgment. Uh, In Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, just four verses, this is what he says to bad shepherds. "'Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture,' says the Lord. "'Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who shepherd my people,' It is you who have scattered my flock and driven them away, and you who have not attended to them. So I will attend to you for your evil doing, says the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the lands where I've driven them, and I'll bring them back to their fold, and they will be fruitful and multiply. And I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them, and they will not fear any longer or be dismayed, nor any shall be missing, says the Lord." So for Jeremiah, uh, the bad shepherds are going to be destroyed, and God will, after exile, will bring them home with new shepherds, and they'll have a new relationship. In other words, shepherds are leaders. Uh, shepherds are proxies for God. And any time someone um, helps another or leads another, uh, they are acting as shepherds. I've got an example that I use at church all the time. I, I will tell kids when I'm doing premarital counseling, I'll teach them how to think about love, and especially agape love, that self-sacrificial love that becomes a, a benchmark for uh, for marriage, and their eyes get all big, and, and I, won't, I won't go into everything I say to them except to say that love becomes the standard by which they do everything, and it's also once you see it, you can't unsee it. And once I've got them nodding up and down and ready to live a whole life of self-sacrifice for each other, uh, I'll tell them this. Now marriage is going to be your witness, because <clears throat> I can't get to everybody. I can't explain love in this way, but you can, and you can find your own words and in your own good marriage, when the when the kids are all having supper club at your house and the girls are in the kitchen and the boys are by the grill, uh, someone's gonna say, You two are so lucky, and you're gonna say it's not luck at all, and this is how we do it. And when they do this, they will be shepherds of their friends. This is what this kind of shepherding means. In other words, whenever we are the hands and feet of God or Jesus, or however you want to say this, whenever we become a witness and we help another, give another hope, when we instruct another from our own wisdom, then we too are participating in this shepherding uh, that God asks of us. Leaders are shepherds. And friends, I, I will say that as an ordained clergy person, there are times when I've definitely felt that I was a shepherd and was needed as a shepherd. I've got my own story. Last June, there was a mass shooting at a Episcopal Church, just in the neighborhood where my church sits, it's just right across the kind of across the neighborhood and on the other side. Very close sister congregation, lots of mutual families, lots of mutual friends. And one night I'm having having supper with with Ellen, and suddenly the um, phone rings, and it's a it's a local pastor from another Episcopal Church downtown, and he calls me and he says, "Are you watching the news?" I said, "No, I'm just just eating." And he said, uh, uh, "I need you to I need you to." we need to go to St. Stephen's. There's been a mass shooting. Well, we just both hung up the phone and both of us instinctively put on our black shirt and white collar, which is not something that that Huey and I wear every day, uh, but we also knew that we might be needed to show the flag and it might even be necessary to show the flag for the police to see who we were. Uh, so it was it was a blur, but somehow, you know, 30 minutes later, Huey and I are standing in a parking lot of of horrified, distraught people. It was still a crime scene. Uh, their church had been assaulted. Their friends had been murdered. Uh, there were three deaths in that shooting. We, we stood every lined up, everyone in a circle, and we said, okay, let's pray. And we prayed the Lord's Prayer, and we recited Scripture, and we prayed for the by name for the people who were killed. We prayed for St. Stephen's. We prayed for Holy Spirit protection. And I looked at their own blank eyes, and I realized that they needed a shepherd to lead them. The next morning, we had a huge service. In my church, because I had the not only had the size to to have their whole congregation there, but also their their church was still a crime scene that couldn't have gotten in anyway. So the next morning, early in the morning, people were already there. We opened up our doors. We 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 created a service in less than eight hours for the whole community because they needed shepherding. They needed someone to take care of them. So when we, when we take care of people who are helpless, when we protect people from harm, when we lead them, if you will, beside still waters, uh, then we too become shepherds. And our clergy are shepherds. Now, let's go back to uh, John chapter 10 and keep, keep reading this good shepherd passage that, that is just so beloved. And now that we're beginning to understand shepherding, maybe, maybe this is starting to click in a new way. So again, Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, I'm the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. I have a friend in Bethlehem who explains this. Uh, in Bethlehem, uh, they sleep in caves. And other places where they might not have caves, they'll sleep in an enclosed uh, gate called the, called the sheepfold, if you will, an enclosed an enclosed thing. So the sheep could sleep there safe, safely at night. But hold that thought about Bethlehem because they would put the, put the sheep inside in a cave and then the shepherds sleep outside as a living gate. Now the story, right, from Luke chapter 2 begins to make sense with uh, shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. I mean, I know our Christmas cards all have shepherds and, and sheep out into the night sky, but sheep got to sleep somewhere, and they need to sleep at night, and what they would do is put them safely in a cave and then sleep in the wall. And then what's cool about this is that all the herds would get all mixed up. So they had to learn their master's voice when they emerged so that they could go with the right Shepherd, if you will. Now it's dawning on me as we as we live in the world of shepherds and we learn about this relationship and what an important metaphor that it's becoming is that sheep are not dumb, but rather they're loved and protected. I think in my own Sunday school days, I think our, our Sunday school teachers, our illustrated Bibles, or, or, or our Victorian uh, stories, if you will, uh, uh, Bible stories and Bible story books, our our flannel graph boards, and anything else that might you know that we might have used using sheep and shepherds, I, I think I was taught that sheep were helpless and sheep needed a shepherd just to stay alive because they weren't very smart. That might be an English uh, experience of shepherding, a, a place with with rock walls and, and fields and barns it, that might come, come with some validity. But in the world of Jesus and in the wilderness of Judea, uh, sheep are valued, uh, they're valuable, uh, they're loved, and they're protected. Quite frankly, in the environment in which they're raised, they can't survive without a shepherd. What a perfect metaphor for God and God's people. And Jesus uses this phrase that they all knew, whoever enters the gate by me will be saved and will come and will go out and find pasture. Now we know, right? Jesus is the living gate and whoever comes in by the gate will be saved. And the phrase they know is this, will come and will go out and find pasture. Come in and go out is the ideal for God's people uh, to describe peace and security. They can't find a, a better way to be alive than to be able to come in and to go out in safety and in peace. Remember Psalm 121? God will bless your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. That's the way the psalm ends. Well, going out and coming in, to be able to come and go uh, without any harm means that you've got a shepherd watching over you. It's it's just a perfect, perfect phrase to talk about our protective relationship with a God who knows our name and we know his voice. And still there's more. Now, remember I told you about prophets and about going home prophets and and, and prophets called out in Babylon and why that's such a big deal. Would When they asked for kings, God would send them prophets. And then when God sent them prophets way out there, God was saying, hey, you, you've lost everything. You've lost your king. You've lost your city. You've lost your temple. You've lost everything, except you still have me, and you, and you have your heart, and I will bring a prophet to speak the truth to you. One of these prophets was Ezekiel, called by God way out there. We don't know where Isaiah, uh, the going home Isaiah, was called by God. He could have been one of the exiles. But we do know that God called a prophet Ezekiel living in Babylon, which means that God is not bound by geography because there's only one God. And God says to Ezekiel this, and Ezekiel speaks speaks this about prophets. He's talking about the false shepherds that made it all happen. Just like Jeremiah, he sees false shepherds as as the origin, if you will, of all their problems. This is Ezekiel chapter 34, just a few verses. The word of the Lord came to me. Mortal, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy, and I say to them, to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, you shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. You've not strengthened the weak, you've not healed the sick, you've not bound up the injured, you've not brought back the strayed, you've not sought the loss, but with force and harshness you've ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and scattered. They became food for all the wild animals. My sheep were scattered, and they wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. The sheep were scattered over the face of the earth, no one to seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild animals, and since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves, have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. I am against the shepherds. I will demand my sheep at their hand, and I will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths so that they may not be food for them. God takes shepherds very seriously. Can you see the contrast? Jesus is the good shepherd as opposed to the bad shepherds. He's not that. It's also a word of warning for all the bad shepherds out there. God takes it very seriously when we hurt God's children. Everyone is loved and cherished by God, and we are all part of the flock. Ah, it's the perfect metaphor. In a world with little water and very little protection for sheep, uh, we need to remember that God will care for us and lead us to still waters. Well, thanks, everybody. Um, think about shepherds and check it out, and we'll see you next time.